Welcome back to Shadow on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the queen of all HBO shows, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And the King B. Hey, you want a whore? Go buy one. This is our fan email episode <laughs> where we look back on this week's Game of Thrones and provide our feedback on the top listener emails and voicemails for the week. This week's episode was entitled Winterfell. You spent 45 minutes listening to our ideas on Tuesday's deep dive. Now it's our turn to hear from you. Uh, Big D, King B, I forgot how many voicemails and emails we get for Game of Thrones. We've been doing American Gods for a while, and it's like one, maybe two, maybe three emails all from the same people. This is a whole different animal. Yeah, so what we do is they, they come in, we all read them, we vote on them, then we sort them, and then we whittle it down, and they just keep coming in. And you try to find new good ones. You keep pushing them down. So if, if, if yours doesn't make it onto the small council, we will post them on the website. There is so much good stuff. And we end up, we're like, okay, let's record tonight at 10 o'clock. And we end up spending an hour debating over two and three emails that are very close, very thought out, very thought provoking. So please, if you don't get read, don't get discouraged. But I mean, we're, we're getting 50, 60 emails and, and voicemails. So we only have room for the select few, but they're all great and they'll be on the website. In our iTunes reviews, people often say that we're knowledgeable about the show, that we have it figured out. You know, We're experts on Game of Thrones. A lot of that, I'd say most of that actually, comes from the community that's built around the show and on Shout on TV. And so some of these ideas really get our minds going and it, it all kind of builds together. Big D today, we talked before recording and he's like, I got to figure it out. I know what's going on. And so much of the ideas are basically he took samples from two, three, four different writers and put them together. And so it's really great to kind of figure this out together, a piece of show together, and also just hear what you feel about the show. Those are some of my favorite emails. It's just people's experiences with Game of Thrones. So without further ado, Big D, take us to the small council. Shame. 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 Our first email comes from listener Ken L. And Ken writes to us quite a bit. So it's fitting that we start out season eight with him. He wrote some really powerful stuff this week. And again, just as a reminder, Ken writes very long emails. And that's perfectly okay. We love all that content. But for the sake of the podcast, we're going to cut it down to just a few minutes. And Ken starts out, Jon Snow and Danny will both die. Game of Thrones is known on the surface as a show with brutal, shocking deaths of its main characters. But if you look closer, this show is about legacy. It's about how death isn't the end, but rather how a life echoes for generations. It's a story that in season eight is still about Ned Stark. Look at the North. Ned, by all accounts, was a just, honorable, and kind lord. He raised his children with integrity. He did not play the Game of Thrones. He played the long game, but would never see it that way. His execution had obvious political consequences. It's not necessarily surprising that the North would unite around Rob, even if Ned was kind of a shit. But in season six, the Boltons have all the power and the North has just lost a war. Ned has no known living trueborn sons. Nonetheless, John and Davos are able to rally certain houses against impossible odds using, in no small part, Ned's legacy. The echo of Ned's life continued well past his death. It carried into John's leadership style and the loyalty House Stark evoked under Ned's and now John's rule. It's the reason why the North will be as ready as they can be against the army of the dead. Ned's death was shocking, but its greatest impact has been more subtle and spanned across the remainder of our story. The same can be said of Cat Stark, 
to a lesser degree. Littlefinger and Brienne, about the two most different people in the universe, dedicate their lives to the memory of Cat Stark. Her life echoed well beyond her death, turning the man who pined after her into a monster and giving purpose to an honorable outcast. Cat Stark is just as responsible as Sansa for the outcome of the Battle of the Bastards. She's just as responsible as Theon for helping Sansa escape Ramsay. I could go on. Tywin Lannister, a man obsessed with legacy, is one of the great ironies of this story because that obsession led to neglected children who would come to hate and destroy that legacy. But I think we get the point. The deaths in this show are shocking, but often the best way to highlight a main character's true impact. So turn to John and Danny. This can't just be a story where the secret king, hidden as a bastard, rises to take the throne as a heroic king. It can't be a story where the princess on the run reunites her forces and finally fulfills her dream of coming home to her birthright. And it can't be a story where you have those two competing fantasy tropes, and the ending is, hey, they both happen because John and Danny rule together. That's not Game of Thrones. That's not George R.R. R. Martin. And we know from interviews that the show will use Martin's self-described bittersweet ending. At the same time, it would be a great disservice to have John or Danny simply die for shock value. When the dust settles, once the wars are won, the surviving characters must build a new world. Danny wanted to smash the wheel and free all men and women. John was held back his whole life under a feudal system, but flourished with the free folk. It might be tempting for whomever is at the top once all is said and done to simply don the crown and take the throne. It might be impossible for competing factions to agree among their own competing ideals and plans for the future. But if the show genuinely wants Danny and John to have a real impact, they will die and their friends and followers will continue their legacy as best they can by destroying the Iron Throne. And that comes from Ken L. Yeah, Ken, I really love this email. I think uh, you've hit on something. It's It would make sense if Daenerys, who wants to make change, and we've seen she's a flawed leader. She doesn't make always this, the right decision, the smart decision. But in death, if she could bring upon Westeros a change in the structure, you know that there is no more Iron Throne, uh, her legacy would forget all of her mistakes of the past, and she'd re- be remembered only for that one last grand gesture. I like that Ken highlights a mistake that I made about the show for eight seasons, which is I always say to people, I really like the Ned Stark character. I wish she would have been around longer. I wish she would have had more of an impact on the show. And when you look at it from this perspective, he is the show still. He is in every episode, in every moment. And beyond that, Ken also introduced another idea that I didn't think about, which was we talk about who's going to sit on the throne or maybe the Night King won't care about the throne. I don't think any of us has brought up the possibility that they just say, fuck the throne. We're done with this. Thanks, Ken, for your email. Uh, the next one comes up from Taryn Woods, and it's about the scene that a lot of us said we didn't like, uh, the dragon riding scene, the Aladdin magic carpet ride between Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen. And Taryn writes, on your Instacast podcast episode, you thought the dragon riding scene was kind of ridiculous. I had the same feeling at first. However, after more observation, I believe this is panning out to be an extremely important scene. I believe with John being a Targaryen and riding the dragon, he has now earned an ally or a weapon to combat Daenerys. The scene with the kiss can be misleading. It appears that the dragon is watching to provide protection to the queen, but what if he was protecting John from Daenerys? That's what I believe, just a theory, crystal clear, Taron Woods. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if that proposal has my buy-in. The idea that these two are going to have to go to battle, I I don't really know that I really care for that. The notion that at one point these two are going to have to have, you know, a heart to heart about their differences, 
I'm looking forward to that. But the notion that there's actually going to be combat between the two of these people, I just don't know if I want to see that. See, I want to take it a different way. What it made me think of is that we needed to have a believable reason why John could bond with his dragon. In researching how they train dragons and how the riders bond, they said it's very much like humans and horses. It's like Avatar. The dragons would actually want to be petted. They would actually nuzzle with the riders. So it's a very close bond. If something were to happen to Daenerys, let's say, we would need a plausible explanation for how Jon could then immediately take over the reins as a rider and command the dragons into battle. Well, another listener, Armando from Puerto Rico, wrote in about this same scene. And he was basically saying that, you know, it was a necessary middle step because eventually, if we want to see Jon ride a dragon into battle, if he's going to show up on the scene and save the day, you're going to be like, whoa, he just suddenly learned how to ride a dragon. You got to show him being on a dragon first, you know, before he can be a badass. He's got to walk before he can run. Now, I don't know if this is the way I prefer to see him bond with the dragon necessarily, but they, they accomplished a few things at once. Um, some people also thought that, I think listener Gillian wrote in and said, you know, this might just be a distraction on Daenerys' part. And she's actually just trying to, you know, as he's trying to figure things out, she's like, hey, let's go ride a dragon. Hey, let's mm-hmm. be romantic together. And just keeping his eye off of what's really going on. And it seems, you know, really from the north side, Sansa seems to be the only one with her head on her shoulders. You're making a lot of sense. Thanks, Taryn and Armando, for your emails. And Gillian, too. Uh, next up, we have Nicole, who writes in, Hi, guys. Love your podcast. I was listening to the Winterfell episode, and I have an observation about the pregnancy situation. Do we think Cersei lost the baby she claimed to have had in the last season? As we saw in season seven, Cersei declines the wine that Tyrion offers her, and he infers from that and her touching her belly that she is pregnant. However, in season eight, episode one, after Cersei and Euron do the dirty, she's drinking wine. Maybe nothing, but I thought it was worth a mention. Thanks, Nicole. See, she could have been playing both parts. With Tyrion there, she's not drinking the wine, making her story of being pregnant believable. With Euron there, she's known for being a wine connoisseur and drinking constantly. If she did not have a post-coital glass of wine, Euron might think something's up. The immediate moment after he leaves the room, she's not drinking anymore. So she could have been putting on a show for both. It's impossible to say whether the pregnancy is genuine from these two situations. Now, normally I'd be like, so what? It's a glass of wine. Who cares? But notice also in the trailer for the season, Cersei has no lines, I think, but she's got the glass of wine. It's definitely telling us something is going on there. And Big D, what you said on the deep dive this week, I wholeheartedly agree with that Euron is a smokescreen for this pregnancy that she has. Uh, it, It gives her an alibi, if anything else. And this is the same thing that she did with Robert Baratheon. So my guess is that she is pregnant and uh, is faking that she is not in front of certain people rather than the other way around. But hey, it could go either way, Nicole. I mean, it does seem like she gets pretty emotional after Euron leaves the room. Is there almost maybe a tear coming to her eye? The notion that maybe she could have lost the baby is legitimate. The notion that she's just had to sleep with this man when she was really in love with her brother and they were going to have another child. I mean, there's, there's a lot weighing on this person. I think that maybe we're getting hung up on this glass of wine. The glass of wine is more of a smokescreen to the viewer than what may actually be happening in the show. Yeah, I think we've never seen Cersei very emotional, and she seems to be okay sending 
uh, Braun off to kill Jamie. So I don't think she's emotional about that. She's always loved one thing in her life. Well, two things. She loves wine and she loves her children. So the emotional reaction to, I'm going to put a prince in your belly, could be the knowledge that she actually lost the prince in her belly. All right. Thanks, Nicole, for your email. Next up, we have one from Eric B. Uh, Eric B. writes in, hey, guys, how devastating would it be if the Night King does not attack Winterfell? We're all expecting this big battle in the next couple episodes. And what if it took place at King's Landing instead? If I were the Night King, why would I attack the most heavily defended castle containing the largest army in Westeros, two dragons, and an arsenal of dragonglass weapons? Would it not be more strategic to head south and pick off a much smaller army at King's Landing, especially if said army is fighting for coin and not prepared to fight the undead? Not only that, but heading south would help weaken Winterfell by cutting off any route for supplies to Winterfell and limit the option to retreat should Winterfell fall. Also, by waiting to attack Winterfell, those Dothraki and Unsullied and dragons will be going through food supplies mighty fast. Also, there's the position you'd place the leaders of Winterfell in. Do they send help and lose any defensive advantage? Also, from a show viewing perspective, I find it interesting as for two years I've been expecting the Night King to attack Winterfell first, and I'd love for this expectation to be tossed aside. Anyway, big fan of your podcast, been listening since Westworld Season 1. Thanks for years of keeping my work week interesting. Eric B. So another listener wrote in with another piece of the puzzle, Brandon, and he brought up the Battle of Whispering Woods and the sacking of High Garden. There's twice that the show has used misdirection. We're assuming the troops are going somewhere and they're going another place. If you attack Winterfell this episode or next episode and you drive people south, the army of the dead is just going to run them down. You're not going to outrun them. So there's no way you're going to make it to King's Landing. I think one of the biggest redirects and kick in the teeth that people would not expect is if that attack never comes. And all of a sudden, you're like, where are they? Where, you know, where's the Lannister army? They're not a Cashley Rock. Holy shit, they're sacking Highgarden. If next episode, everyone's anticipating Winterfell, what if it's the Battle of King's Landing? It makes more sense to me. On one hand, I'm impressed by this idea because I was so confident that in the season preview, I'm like, yeah, episode three. Battle of Winterfell, definitely going to happen. We see the trailer. We see the hoof come down on the ice. Night King is there. Shit's going to go down. I get it. I would love to see that flipped around and King's Landing be attacked first. On the other hand, though, it's not like this is like eight guys moving under cover of night toward King's Landing. This is a massive horde of giants, a dragon, (laughs) thousands of whites. The Night King, it's not like they just, you know, are going to scoot by. It's not like Winterfell doesn't have scouts out there. Uh, This seems highly unlikely to me. I mean, shit, you'd send one dragon up. You'd be like, hey, what do we see over there? Oh, it's the Night King and his entire army. I'm actually surprised that they don't have intelligence on where these guys are right now. Well, that's the thing we got to remember. The Night King, he has has to have a similar ability to Bran because he was able to ambush Bran and actually marked him. And that's how they got when he was with the Three-Eyed Raven, how they were actually able to break the spell and going after him. There's no reason to think that the Night King doesn't already know what Bran knows. And he knows Winterfell is, and you notice I said Winterfell, Winterfell, not Winterfell. Very nice. Thank you, thank you. That Winterfell is highly protected and that there's a, only a skeleton crew of the, the Golden Company in King's Landing. Go there, kill all the civilians. Double the size of your army in one shot then head north to the real battle at hand. They'd be great. 
maybe they're actually just marching south to rescue White in a box. They think he's there. He's being held against his will. He needs their help. He's their buddy. Gotta go get him. Guys, if I'm going to put myself in a zombie warlord's shoes, okay, I know that my soldiers, they don't need to eat. They don't need to drink. They really don't even need weapons. Really, the only thing that I ever care about is growing my numbers. I don't really care about cutting somebody off or starving them out. I'm going to go to the next closest spot and I'm going to kill a couple people because my numbers just double. You know, I I don't I don't think this guy needs to be tactical and he doesn't need to outthink his his enemies because I mean he's got the greatest advantage in just walking around and getting a couple lazy kills. The guy even when he's losing he's winning. So I don't really think that he needs to go and get tactical and I don't believe that it would be. I think this is sort of a zombie horde that granted has some steerage to it but I don't think that there's some high-thinking tactical mindset behind it all. Well, when you're facing a, a defended position with two dragons, he saw what those dragons did on those strafing runs to the dead. The dead are very flammable. So you want as <laughs> many of them as possible. Yeah, but you just go get more dead. They're just they're right there on the other side of that wall. <laughs> You get a couple dudes in there, and they start making more dead people. Those dead people make dead people. Those dead people make dead people. You're good to go. Dragons, I don't even care about dragons. And ultimately, if the White Walkers are looking to end all life, I'm not worried about dragons, because dragons ultimately are going to start killing more people anyway. All right. right. (laughs) And that's King B with his apocalyptic preview uh thanks brandon for your email next up we've got ken uh ken writes in just something ridiculous that i can't seem to shake off entirely is the idea that sansa and Arya will come to rely on brand too much brand is essentially acting as sort of government surveillance system while this led to the well-deserved execution of lord baelish i wonder what other outcomes might not be as good brand has already shown that although he may be able to see everything he may not have the full context, such as when he knew about Jon Snow's parentage, but did not know the annulment of Rhaegar's prior marriage. I worry that Sansa's and Arya's reliance on Bran will cause them to miss things, such as Jamie's overall redemption arc, and focus only on what Bran chooses to recall. And that comes from listener Ken. I think a bigger problem than, than Sansa and Arya putting too much faith in what he's seeing and says is himself. He's too overconfident. Just like he was overconfident when the Three-Eyed Raven said, don't go back too much. You can lose yourself. And when the Three-Eyed Raven falls asleep, he's actually marked. I think his overconfidence will be his downfall. And that if the living is putting their ultimate faith in what he's saying, at this point, we don't even know that he's what percent human. Why are you always assuming he has the human's best interests at heart? Yeah, the notion that I get from Bran, they're not going to be using him as some sort of secret Google background check on everybody. He's disconnecting from his family. He's disconnecting from everybody. He's getting less human as time comes. I think the big mistake is maybe they rely on him and he just doesn't think to warn people because he just assumes that this is just how things are going to work anyway. He would be interrupting uh, fate. All right. Thanks so much, Ken, for your email. Uh, Next up, we've got Mike L., in Wanta, New York. Did I pronounce that right, Big D? He did, Wanta. He writes, Seven blessings, noble hosts of Shad on TV. 
The season eight premiere was awesome, and I can't wait for this Sunday's episode. But something about the ways in which certain characters speak to each other seems off to me. Why don't these characters stop to question the weird shit that's going on around them? (laughs) For example, when Bran makes his comments about there not being enough time for formal greetings, how he's almost a man, and how he's waiting for an old friend, why doesn't anyone turn to him and say, what the hell are you talking about? Why would Danny and John just let these comments pass without demanding to know how Bran can be so sure of this stuff? I know that if I were Jon Snow and I saw my brother, Bran, after so many years, and now he's weird as hell, I wouldn't be able to stop myself from asking for an explanation. And John himself should do some explaining as well. When Arya asks him how he survived a knife to the heart, I suppose it's snappier writing to have John reply with, I didn't, but come on. If Arya were acting true to character, who is now supposedly very wary and suspicious of everyone, wouldn't she at least ask for a bit more detail than what John gave her? Bottom line, though, the show is awesome as ever, and the showrunners could give us an hour of Hodor's hairy ass, and I'd still be thrilled. Equally as thrilling are the Shat on TV and Shat the Movies podcast, and I thank you for all your efforts in keeping us informed and entertained. Shat on, Mike L. from Wanta, New York. So, Mike L., this reminded me of somebody around your neck of the woods. The Long Island medium, you know, like the, uh, the psychics who will take one little piece of information? What Bran is saying, people should be questioning simply because, like he tells Sansa when when he sees her the first time last season, oh, you looked beautiful that night. And she immediately thinks, oh, it's the wedding. He saw everything that happened with Ramsay. It's like a it, it, it's like a psychic. You need Bran to lay it on the line for people to have this blind faith. Somebody's got to put their hand up and say, hold on. Why did the kid in the wheelchair just interrupt the queen? What? what who? Who is he? It would make sense. The only explanation I can think of is, well, two twofold. One is maybe there are conversations that are happening off screen and these questions are being asked. But the other one is that Bran might just kind of spook people the hell out. Now, maybe not Jon Snow. I mean, he's fought the undead. He's been north of the wall, whatever. But I can see where Sam <laughs> is not going to question him. When he says, I'm waiting for an old friend, I'd be like, Sam's like, I want to get the hell away from this kid. You know, they they may just they may just accept that that's part of his condition is he's just kind of a weirdo. Could it be that they just think he was the kid who fell out the window? So everybody's like, hey, he's a bit soft in the head. (laughs) Yep. That's hold on. Hold on. It's Bran. He fell out the window. He was he was in a coma for a while. Just just let him ramble. Let him ramble. Yeah, that's Ned's kid. He fell on his head. (laughs) We're just uh, just we just keep him fed. We leave him in the courtyard. But, you know, (laughs) He's always been kind of a weirdo. He used to have dreams that he was inside an animal. I think maybe they've just always known he was kind of different and they just accept it as how it is. Great call, Mike L. Thanks for your email. Uh, Next up, we have one from Tom from Chicago. Tom writes in, consider the mother of dragons. She's the only one at this stage that has what it takes to win the game. She reminds me of Queen Elizabeth of England type character. She is charming, but ruthless and has the drive to get what she wants. In my view, none of the other contenders for the throne can match her in ambition. The tragic ending to the series that people in the know are hinting at is that Jon Snow will be the final casualty in her path to the throne. She will not eliminate him because she hates him, but because he is a threat to her ambitions and position. That is the ending I want as it best reflects who has played the game the best. That's Tom from Chicago. So Tom did a great job and he actually outlines all the different contenders at this point for the throne, kind of the, the known quantities. And we've got Jon Snow and he's saying he's too nice. He's got Sansa. She's a good leader from a tactical point of view. 
But is she strategic? Who knows? Cersei is just a little bit crazy. And so it, it kind of boils down to the fact that we've got the queen here, the mother of dragons, and it's it's the obvious choice. But the thing that makes it the obvious choice is all of the things that we would consider maybe personality flaws, her willingness to cut people out of the game, her absolute insistence on fealty. You don't see John walking around saying, everyone will bow down to me. I'm king of the north. He has already made that concession to her. And so she's going to run with it. I totally agree with you, Tom. As much as I love the character Jon Snow, I would love for him to be the final step in her uh, journey toward the throne, if that's the way it turns out. Next up, we have an email from Max, and he's writing in about the timing of the Jon Snow revelation. He says, hi, guys. I really enjoy On the Throne, and you're off to a great start for season eight. Please keep up the great work. My question is, Bran doesn't want to waste any time. He sensibly wants everyone to focus on fighting the army of the dead. So why does he tell Sam that now is the time to tell John about his true parents? How is that relevant to the war with the dead? Isn't it actually a political distraction instead? Best wishes, Max. Oh, it gets even better. Max is missing one component. He had to wait until Sam had just found out that Daenerys had roasted his father and his brother. So now he's devastated, he's pissed off, he's angry. And then Brad says, this is the optimal moment. It doesn't benefit their mission at all. If the ultimate goal is to defeat the Night King, there's, there's no way you tell him right now. But do you think some kid with some sort of otherworldly sight that can see back into time, uh, is he really capable or interested in the notions of uh, being mischievous or maybe not entirely transparent about what's going on? I'm saying again, we don't know what his goals are. We're putting faith that Bran is now still a majority human. We don't know that for sure. It could be a sort of a Doctor Strange thing where he's looking at all the ways that things can play out and he's going, okay, timing right now by telling John this may cause some horrible things to happen immediately and political dissent and clashes and maybe even some heroes being killed. But in the long run, in order for us to survive this, he has to know this right now. I will say that the notion that that's coming through from a person who has good reason for treason, I think is an incredibly smart story detail. It adds a lot of depth to what's going on. I mean, this is so much more layered than dudes with swords fighting dragons and zombies. It's my absolute favorite aspect of this season, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Thanks, Max, for your email. Next up, we have one from Claire. Uh, Claire writes in, I wanted to call out some casual misogyny that I heard on the Instacast this weekend. I'm not accusing anyone of being sexist. We live in a world that promotes patriarchal hierarchy, and we say things that we don't mean to be sexist. Your guest host mentioned that he found Danny fundamentally unlikable because she was, quote, a spoiled brat. I want to challenge that idea and argue that if she were a man, you wouldn't say that about her. She was called, quote, uppity which I would argue is embodied by most of the leaders in the show, portrayed as self-confidence or royalty, except Jon Snow, which has led to his literal demise. I challenge y'all to think more critically about how you speak about female leaders. Are they annoying because they are genuinely flawed or because they are women with power? Danny definitely has some critical flaws, but calling her, quote, a spoiled brat is reductive and sounds like a gendered attack from two men. That comes from Claire Fry. Claire, I've been thinking about this email for a good two or three days now because I know 
while you're kind enough not to use names, it's all me. Uh, you know what? Uh, looking back, maybe spoiled brat isn't the right word. In fact, no, it's not the right word. It's just it was what was easy. Um, thank you for being generous and calling it casual misogyny because uh, it certainly wasn't formal misogyny. Um, and yeah, you know, it's I'm glad to see in your email that you do acquiesce to the fact that the Dragon Queen isn't all that. I've been kind of thinking about why I dislike this character and what are the the motivations for me personally. And I thought to myself, if I'm a resident of this kingdom, of this world, because I'm really trying to put myself into this story, I'm a working schlub. I don't, I, these guys know me. I don't really care for authority all that much in my life. And uh, the notion that this person was born to privilege and granted, she got the definite short end of the privilege stick for many, many, many years. Uh, Just the notion that this person is entitled to a thing. I don't feel that she is. And I mean, we could get into why I've got a big long rant for why I don't care for the dragon queen, but ultimately as just, a working schlub. I don't care for many of the rulers on this show. Ned Stark was honorable. He stood for something, but he was probably still the best amongst a terrible cast of leaders. I would say that Joffrey was certainly a spoiled brat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an irredeemable, you know, I'm just going to slow down with my name calling and just say he was a bad character. <laughs> uh, I think that there are, and we're given hints to Daenerys's foibles and failings and as a previous email stated what if in her quest for the throne she has to step over john in a maybe physical or a violent way wouldn't that be an interesting illustration of her her character uh maybe coming to her full fruition king b i disagreed with you on the podcast when you said it uh and i don't honestly believe that in your heart you said it because she was a woman but I can think of three characters that are much better spoiled brats that deserved what they got. Are they alive? Oh, no. Who, who, hell no. Robin Aaron. We have Joffrey and then Viserys. If you wanted a spoiled Targaryen, I want my golden crown. Uh, he was the spoiled brat. While Daenerys, she never complained. She was living with a, a horde of Dothraki and horses. She was getting raped, essentially. She never complained. Bathing in boiling hot water, yes. surviving fire, having dragons, uh, yes. leading people based on a comet and finding a city, removing slavery from an entire civilization, surviving assassination attempt after assassination attempt, not taking the easy way out a thousand times as many people try to make you a queen of their smaller kingdom because you know that your rightful place is on that throne. And the only stories you've been told about your family, about your father specifically, are from your brother, who made it sound like the Targaryens are the greatest ever. Yeah. Thanks, Claire, for your email. Uh, next up, we have one from Ken L. Ken writes, uh, hello, chat hosts. One of my favorite parts of the season premiere was the changed title sequence, the different camera angle, low to the ground, winter coming from the fallen wall, going inside the buildings, all awesome. But hands down, one of my favorite small details was the change in the depictions of the rings that circle around the sun. I've attached pictures for reference, and you can see those at shadontv.com. Those rings for the past seven seasons have shown three different tapestries. The first is the Doom of Valyria. You can see a volcano erupting and a dragon crying out in pain. This was the fiery apocalypse that destroyed the Valyrian Empire and all dragon lords except the Targaryens, 
who left the Empire for Westeros years prior to the Doom. The second ring shows Robert's rebellion, with a stag, a lion, and a direwolf attacking a dragon. This, of course, symbolizes the Baratheons, Lannisters, and Starks taking down the Mad King and the Targaryen dynasty. The third ring shows a crowned stag standing proud as lion, wolf, falcon, kraken, bear, and others bow before it. Robert is king. This episode had three very different tapestries. The first appears to be the Night King and Viserion destroying the wall. The dragon looks skeletal. There are lines of men just standing under it, and the winds are swirling around it. The second ring is a tableau of the downfall of houses Stark and Tully. In the dead center, you see a direwolf hanging from a noose with arrows sticking out of him in the archway between two towers. This clearly represents the Red Wedding and Rob's death at the Twins. On the far left, you see a lion eating a fish from the stream. Lannister has effectively destroyed House Tully with its lord and keep taken by Jaime. On the far right, you see a man holding up the head of a direwolf with a dagger in his hand. We're dealing with sigils here. And while Beheaded Wolf clearly evokes Ned Stark, the man with the knife is clearly a flayed man. This represents House Bolton and Ramsay's murder of Rickon. Remember, they beheaded Shaggy Dog. Finally, the third ring shows four dragons, one big, three small, as a comet streaks through the sky. The simplest interpretation is that this shows the rise of Danny and her three dragons. The comet was from season two and was interpreted from some to mean the rise of dragons, others to mean the coming of Azor Ahai, or the prince that was promised. And that comes from Kenel. So I know you hate when I do this, Gene, but I'm just going to state some facts and come up with a possible hypothesis or ask why. The, the odd thing, as we're progressing north to south, the, the three different events are shown in reverse chronological order. You have the fall of the wall, the red wedding, and then the birth of the dragon. They should be reversed. Are they trying to... To imply that there could be some some time travel component, you know, much like we saw Bran using the green side to go back to the Tower of Joy. Is there something else that's going on that required them flipping the sequence? I mean, I don't want to read too far into it. You know, I hate to to speculate mm-hmm. on this sort of thing, but for me, it was just more a celebration of the attention to detail uh, in these opening sequences. And I really did, you know, Ken focuses on the tapestries part. I really liked that they actually took the time to make that kind of machine opening credits from the perspective of an actual human size. So as it goes into the buildings, it's never really done that before. Um, and the the designers who did it said they actually were doing it to the scale of like a Jamie Lannister, basically. It was the, the example that they offered of like a man of that height. So when you're looking around, you're going down into, you know, the keeps and you're going through the tunnel networks and you're coming into the different castles. You know, we always saw it from kind of an aerial view and this is going, you know, way do- deep down in there and, and scaling everything perfectly. So I thought it was just, again, you know, most shows we're talking about, can they get it right on screen? These guys are getting it right from start to finish and it's really impressive. And our final small council email comes from Ken L. Uh, he writes in, Danny is an awful ruler and should not be queen. Danny's actions demonstrate an unwillingness to share power. Marine may have been won peacefully if she compromised at the start. Tyrion's secession conversation is a necessary one for a supposedly barren queen who wants to reform. But Danny doesn't want to reform. Her entire claim is based on the old system. Break the wheel just means less oscillation between which great house is on top at a given moment. Danny wants Targaryen to always be on top. Keep in mind other players in the Game of Thrones, say Cersei, 
want the same, but only Danny and her followers falsely preach a message of change. These actions demonstrate an unwillingness or inability to plan. She burns food in winter. She brings armies into holdfasts without considering the resource strain. She is indifferent to the dangers her dragons pose. When she is impatient, she abandons planning and war for impulsive attacks. These actions show an unwillingness to learn from her own family's history. Aegon the Conqueror is a masterclass in how to take over a kingdom, and Danny took no notes. Aegon knew local culture matters. He let the Andal kingdoms keep their ways. He let the Northerners keep theirs. And he knelt before the faith of the Seven, an Andal religion that arrived before he did, to get his crown. He knew that that would get him loyalty. Dragonfire could not buy. Danny did just the opposite in Marine. Aegon's conquest of the Vale is instructive for how to take down Cersei. Aegon's sister wife flew to the Eyrie with her dragon and landed on the balcony, demanding the king of the Vale bend the knee. The kingdom was won without bloodshed. Danny could have done this to Cersei in the Red Keep, but instead she suggests on just attacking King's Landing, then agrees to Tyrion's awful plan, then just attacks the Lannisters willy-nilly. And that comes from Ken L. My man. There's some good thinking from Ken L. I'm in Camp Kenny. Thanks for writing in. Yeah, Ken is Ken is again, I mean, we have some superstar uh email writers, and Ken is consistently up there. Um, and I encourage everyone to go to shadowntv.com, uh, go to the Game of Thrones small council and just check out the way he lays it down. Cause this is the short version. He goes through each plot point Marine and there's like four bullets. Then Westeros, there's like four bullets. And, and then he, you know, kind of sums it up. This is, this is more essay than email. And uh, it, it's really fantastic. But his, his main point is just this, is that Danny has pledged change. She seems like she wants to care for the common man, but Everything, every action that she takes is is force. There's no desire to understand the people. And that's really strange because she herself had to learn to understand the Dothraki. So when her brother refused to and called them savages and looked down on them, he ended up having a terrible fate as a result. And it seems like she might be destined to have the same uh, ending. And maybe that's the moral of the story is that, you know, people are what they are and they are their legacies. And she's a Targaryen at heart. Thanks, Ken, for your email. And finally, we have one um actually. And again, if you'd like to write in any corrections, you can tweet at us with the hashtag um actually or just write in your um actually to host at shadowntv.com. And this one comes from Matt Barger. And Matt writes, hey, guys, love the podcast. Just one small correction. You guys keep referring to small John Umber. The boy who was killed at the last hearth by the White Walkers in the most recent episode is named Ned Umber. He became... Lord by decree of Jon Snow, who at the time was king in the north. Small John Umber, his father, is the one who brought Rickon to Ramsay and killed Shaggy Dog. He was killed during the Battle of the Bastards. Also, it's Gendry, not Gendry. So I guess that's two corrections. Sorry, I hate to be that guy. I really do love the podcast and listen to each one. Keep up the good work. Matt Barger. Well, I want to add one actually, another um actually, except I'm going to flip this one back. This is a um, um actually, and it comes from Cassandra. And Cassandra said, hi guys, um actually, I think the little boy in the beginning was a direct callback to Bran, not Arya. You see the boy climbing into the tree and get a better look at the host entering Winterfell? Bran is very well known for his climbing. And in the first episode, you see Bran on the walls of Winterfell watching King Robert coming to the castle. 
Yes, it is true that you see Bran on top of the castle, but it is a callback to Arya in the soldier's helmet, flowing through the crowd, climbing to the back of the wagon, shot for shot, it's identical. I sent her screenshots today, and she conveniently did not respond. (laughs) Come on, Cassandra. (laughs) As for Matt, uh, Matt, you're absolutely right. I first realized my mistake when my friend uh, and listener, Tyler, uh, at Tyler Maloney, wrote in to me and said, in a private message, I said, uh, nobody caught this yet? And I was like, oh, shit. And then immediately, it was like the entire internet had conspired, started getting bombarded with this uh, Ned Umber, Small John Umber. Here's my point. Umbers, figure out how to name stuff. Small John was pretty big. Ned's really small. I mean, come on. It makes sense. As for Gendry, I admit that is a mistake as well on the pronunciation. I've been listening to the audiobooks of Game of Thrones, and on those, they pronounce it Gendry. And there's also all sorts of discrepancies there. Uh, Brienne of Tarth is Brian, which is really hard to say. We also got some people writing in about the way I pronounce Varys because it's Varys in the show. But again, I get mixed up a lot because of the audiobooks. I'm used to hearing it so many times repeated that I can't get it out of my head. I know, Big D, you were a Gendry guy last seasons, but you cleaned up your act. Do they say Winterfeld in the audiobooks? No, they didn't. I need say an excuse. They don't? Fuck. No, but uh, another. But to remedy the situation, I have added a pronunciation table to our on-screen notes as we record, and is the official pronunciation table from HBO. So now we will never make a mistake, except for Brienne of Tarth is not on there. Thanks, Matt, for listening and writing in. Uh, Big D, do we have any voicemails this week? Yes, we do. We have a few voicemails, uh, so keep them coming. The first one is from Ashley Shafley. Hi, y'all. This is Ashley Schlafly. I just wanted to call in really quickly. I didn't want to send some giant email yet because I have a lot of thoughts, but it's only the first episode. So before we start start theorizing, I want to kind of digest. But I did want to comment on something that King B talks about in the Instacast that he's gotten a little bit of pushback on Twitter about, and that is the fact that he called Daenerys spoiled. I think that what you're seeing here is a big divide between show watchers and book readers. So on the show, the way that they portray Daenerys, she very much comes across as spoiled. She is privileged very much in the same way that many of our characters, like the Stark siblings of the Lannisters, are privileged because of their names, their titles, and their money. But Daenerys in the book, they, they haven't done a very good job of translating her, perhaps more than any character, from the books to the show, in my opinion. Because Daenerys in the books is a really sad character. She's very different than the one that we see on screen. You know, she's only 13 in the first book of A Song in Ice and Fire, the, um, the book Game of Thrones. She's only 13 years old. And by A Dance with Dragons, she's only reached the age of about 15. And so she's a child. And we have to remember that Daenerys has never really known a home. She has a very tragic upbringing, and there's this entire story plot line that's kind of weaved throughout all of A Song of Ice and Fire that talks about this home with the red door, which is the only home that Danny ever really knew, which was at Sir Willem's home uh, prior to her being taken and basically sold to Cal Droga. And throughout, she's constantly reflecting. She daydreams about being with Dario in a home with a red door. She daydreams about the actual home with the red door. She sees it in the house of the undying, and it's this anchor for her for what she wants. And I think that we have to remember that Daenerys' character, the way that it's written, she's a child who is watching this path toward 
trying to defend a home that she's never known, the Iron Throne in King's Landing, without really truly having a beginning, without truly having a moment that starts her on that journey. So she's complex, she's complicated, she is privileged, but she's not spoiled in the way that it's portrayed in the show. And I don't think it's necessarily Amelia Clark's performance. I think it's more the writing because they took the time to develop the motivations of Jon Snow and Arya and all the other complex characters, but they really haven't with Danny. She's the mother of dragons. She's badass, but she comes across as wooden and kind of one-dimensional in the show. So I think King V's assessment of her in the show is spot on, but the books are very different, and it's a shame that we didn't get to see that. Anyway, loved the first episode. The dragon scene was absolute shit, but other than that, it was great. And thanks so much for all you guys do. Looking forward to marching through Westeros one more time with you guys. Uh, looking forward to the deep dive and small council, and we'll talk to y'all soon. Bye. Great to hear from you, Ashley. Everyone, that's Ashley Schlafly from the Dana Buckler Show and a great friend of the pod. I'm glad you brought that up because as King B and I debated for like an hour over this point last night, uh, the thing I kept bringing up was the books, the books, the books. And he had a great point that the books are not the show. You shouldn't have to depend on the books to understand a character. And you can only assess a show based on what you're seeing on screen. I find it hard, as I said, with the with the audiobook thing, I find it hard sometimes to sort through what I've seen on screen and what I've read. And I think it's a testament to what a great job they do on the show. But she is a very, very different character in the books. And even her relationship with Khal Drogo is so vastly different in the books. And when I saw it, it made me feel that the show did a great disservice to that dynamic. So really, uh, Daenerys, once you've seen what she's been through and the way she reacted to really horrible situations, I would say that she has earned a lot. And beyond that, uh, she has done more to change this world in her short life than most other characters, if not all the other characters. Yeah, I do want to say a big thanks to uh, Ashley. She contributes uh, emails and, and notes on on every show, I think, that comes through this network. She's been really supportive and, and gives a lot of great feedback and a lot of great talking points. And she's really good to me. I really do appreciate it. Uh, we did. Me and Gene had a huge debate. He actually spit at me in his own home. He was so fired up about it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've never been a book reader. I mean, in life, I have read a book. But as far as the show is, is concerned, I've never read the books. I'm not going to go and pick up the books. I'm viewing this whole show, because this is a podcast about the show, on the merits of how this story is presented to me. So thanks a lot for uh, sticking up for me. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to put you to work more in the future doing more of the same. Thanks, Ashley, for your voicemail. Do you have any more? Yep. Next one comes from Jesse in Seattle. Hi, this is for Game of Thrones. And this is Jesse from Seattle. Um, I wanted to, to discuss the idea that uh, Cersei's pregnant, and I don't think she actually is. And, and here's why. First off, you know, we, we, we understand that we're not seeing the show in real time. Uh, this is actually the same argument I use when people talk about, uh, you know, all the jetpacking that happened in previous seasons. Uh, we're not seeing the everyday life of these characters. We don't see the the weeks and months of hard marching and travel. We don't see the small council meetings. We, uh, you know, not every single one of them. We don't say see all the day to day drudgery. What we get uh, in you know between the episodes and even sometimes in the same episode are are highlights of important events that tell the story. 
so with that in mind, a uh, little bit of timeline. As I recall, and I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, the last time that Jamie and Searcy had sex was just after Tom t- took his header out of the Red Keep. Uh, Jamie, in his storyline, then marched all the way to High Garden. He sacked it. He marched all the way back and got attacked by Danny at the loot, the Battle of the Loot Train. Then later, at on Dragonstone, uh, Danny was there when John left, and he sailed all the way north. He hunted down a White Walker. He captured it, sailed all the way back to King's Landing for the meeting at the Dragon Pit. And then uh, the him and the Unsullied Army marched all the way back north uh, <laughs> to Winterfell and showed up in Winterfell this past episode. So we know that this these scenes with Euron Greyjoy in this past episode happened after the Wall Falls, uh, because when he originally showed up on his ships, uh, Quyburn walks out onto the battlements and he says, uh, tells Cersei that they had just received news that the Wall had fallen. Now, this could be happening right around the time John arrives at Winterfell, or maybe even just a little before or a little after. We're not totally sure. But my point is, is that with all of this travel, it would have taken months to pull off. Now, I could see Cersei not being obviously pregnant, not showing by the time of maybe the Dragon Pit meeting. But by now, she should be obviously showing that she's pregnant. And I don't think the, the show would just skip over that. Uh, the show has been pretty detailed about things like that. And the thing is, is if she was actually pregnant you know, she would be showing, and she's not. In these scenes, we see several shots of her from the side and in front. Her dresses are tight, and she looks fit. I mean, she doesn't look pregnant at all, and I think the show is more detailed than that. So the point is um, is that uh, in this scene with Euron, when he talks about getting her pregnant, she looks down, and what I read in her face in that scene it's not conniving. It's not, it's not even really sadness. It's full on grief. It's fantastic acting. And, and for just a moment there, she looks absolutely emotionally wrecked. So my theory here is that she was pregnant, but that somewhere along the line, she maybe lost the baby and has been told by Quiburn that she can't have any more. Uh, and she's barely holding it together. She's right on the edge. So I think the loss of her three children, the death of her unborn baby, her estrangement from Jamie, the, her family falling apart, uh, this is all going to play into her mental state and ultimately whatever her final end of the series will be. Thanks for listening. I'll continue to follow your podcast for the rest of the season and hopefully into Westworld. Thanks, Jesse, for your voicemail. This is an interesting wrinkle that I didn't really think about. Cersei should be showing. You're absolutely right. The, enough time has passed. It is important to note that this show has changed physics in a lot of ways when it was convenient. Let's say, for instance, Arya. I get that she's you know able to uh, disguise herself, whatever. But changing her size entirely seems like a, a bit much, right? But okay, cool. We can we can live with that. I know. Human women, real life women, my mom included, who didn't even buy new clothes when they were pregnant. Now, that might explain the shape of my head, but the fact of the matter is that not everybody gets real big. And 
and I do believe that they could keep Cersei pregnant and not uh, illustrate it. They would just hope that people like didn't pay attention to that. But the bigger question for me isn't a question of what she show or what is she showing like that. It'd be like, what is the point of her getting pregnant again, losing the child, and just not focusing on it, right? So is it to give her more suffering? I think she's suffering enough already. She's lost basically her family and all her children. Also been paraded naked through the streets. Is it for intrigue? Well, it's not very intriguing if nobody really cares about it. And the only thing I could think is either it has something to do with a decision Tyrion will make later on, like the legacy of the family that he's trying to protect if he believes that she's still pregnant and doesn't know. And therefore, we shouldn't know because they don't want to give us that reveal too quickly. Or it has something to do with Euron Greyjoy. But great observation. And also, I do agree that the acting uh, that Lena Headey is doing in season eight is fantastic. Uh, she's a very, very dynamic uh, actress. And I was reading the same things you were. So fantastic job there. And final voicemail of this small council comes from Natalie. Hey, Shad at the Movies. This is Natalie <laughs> calling from Northeast Georgia. And I'm listening to your um, second podcast of the season. By the way, I've really missed you guys. I love your Westworld edition, um, but Game of Thrones is my all-time favorite. So I'm listening, and you guys are talking about the Battle of Winterfell, and something you haven't mentioned is I really think there's going to have to be a Battle of the Dragons. I think Daenerys is going to have to sick her two dragons on her one ice dragon, and I think we're going to have to see that. And maybe her dragons will use their fire um, to, like, scorch him out, since we're assuming that he can also be killed by fire and or dragonglass. So I'm really looking forward to... Dragon Bowl, um, almost as much as I'm looking forward to Clegane Bowl. But uh, thank you guys so much for your podcast. You make my week of driving around so much more fun. And I'm so excited for episode two, where I think a ton of people are going to die. Natalie just said the two most Georgia phrases I think I've ever heard in my life. One was sick her dragons, <laughs> and two was scorch them out. <laughs> these need to be these need to be catchphrases to the rest of the season. <laughs> Sick those dragons, scorch them out. I like that you first called Shat the Movies. I was like, maybe we got the wrong message here. <laughs> no, no one ever calls in about Shat the Movies. But Big D, when you went through your whole battle plan for the Battle of Winterfell, you left out two key factors. One was sicking dragons, and the other one was scorching them out. If you just do those two things, <laughs> you got to win, guaranteed. When in doubt, scorch them out. <laughs> That's right. I just, in my head, I'm picturing Top Gun. And Maverick is chasing Viper. You know, they go below the hard deck and then they buzz the tower. They could do that. And they, they better throw, you know, some Kenny Loggins in there. Well, that'd be great. What if they settle the battle for the kingdoms over a rocking game of volleyball? Yeah. Get some jorts. I'd like it. Playing with them boys. Yep. Playing with them boys. Thanks, Jesse, for your voicemail. And thanks, everyone who wrote in. And called in and everyone who's listening right now, that concludes this week's episode of Shout on TV, Game of Thrones. Be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Shout on TV. Facebook, search for Shout on TV podcast. The website is ShoutOnTV.com. You can send us an email for the confessional at host at ShoutOnTV.com or call in your voicemail at 914-719-SHAT. If you like to contribute to the podcast, you can help us out through PayPal, Venmo, or Amazon. Just go to shoutontv.com slash PayPal slash Venmo slash Amazon, or go to shoutontv.com slash survey to take a survey and help us find sponsors that you'll want to hear from. 
As a reminder, we're everywhere fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please leave a review. That really helps the podcast grow. And I want to say a big thank you to everyone who's listening. And I assume if you've gotten this far into the podcast, that you, you listen to us regularly. When we started this podcast, it, our hopes were very small. If we had a small, loyal audience, we built a cool network of like-minded people who had fun, you know, enjoying TV and movie together. Never, ever, ever in any of our wildest dreams did we think what would happen happened this week. So first, uh, I went to look at the charts and I was like, well, okay, that's pretty good. We're number six in the United States for all TV and movie podcasts. That's that's amazing. That's beyond my dream. So we posted a thank you on Twitter. Then somebody from the UK said, hey, you guys are number two in, in the UK. We found out we were number three in Australia. And then I went later on that day and looked at the overall charts of podcasts. There's over 560,000 active podcasts on iTunes. And this humble podcast of of a handful of friends was number 31. We were ahead of of how stuff works and Ellen. How this happened, I don't know. So thank you to everyone who listens. Thank you to everyone who shares. Thank you for every review. Uh we appreciate it. It's you've you've exceeded our wildest dreams. Uh we do this as a labor of love. We don't make any money off of it. We barely keep the lights on as it is. Uh, but just those, just knowing that people are out there listening, liking it, taking the time to write these great emails and voicemails, it means the world to us. So from honestly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. That is amazing, Big D. And thanks to everyone uh, for listening. On behalf of my co-hosts, Big D, Dick Ebert, and the King B, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us Sunday for our Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 2, Instacast. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mariel Molino, your friend from Mexico City, loyal, loyal supporter of the podcast. Please ignore the voicemail that I sent about a day ago because obviously I have not seen the final episode of season seven. So, you know, please just listen to me in the future, but disregard this horrible mistake of mine. <laughs> Can't wait for the season, you guys. Take care. Bye. God, she needs to call back more. <laughs> Don't you agree? You should just put that at the at the end after the end music. Just the last <laughs> call in the end. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't watch the last episode of last <laughs> yes, season. Exactly. That was a great call. Oh, that was great. She's great. She got to call back again. Fantastic. That and the butt dial that we got. <laughs> what was that in? <laughs> Mom, we're out of peanut butter. Shut up. Uh, memories.